We continue this Lord's Day through 1 John, and we come to 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. There we find these words. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Is it possible to make your love for Christ in this life perfect? We may recoil at such a question knowing full well the sinfulness of our own heart. But dear ones, there is a biblical sense in which our love for Christ in this life is to be made perfect. Well, let us first ask, in what sense our love for Christ in this life is not made perfect? And then we'll consider the question very briefly what it is and how it is made perfect. Well, our love for Christ in this life is not made perfect in an absolute sinless sense. For the struggle we find in Romans chapter 7 between that which we desire to do and don't do and that which we hate to do and do is simply that which every Christian knows and experiences while yet in this unglorified state. Furthermore, we know that even John says earlier in his epistle, in 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If none are sinless in this life, then certainly none have a sinless love for the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. And in this regard, dear ones, it is necessary for us to be continually reminded that love for Christ is in fact not the reason for which God declares a believing sinner righteous in his sight. Although love for the Lord Jesus Christ is the necessary fruit that flows from the life of one who has been justified by faith in Christ, The only reason why God's divine justice and his infinite wrath has been satisfied against the believing sinner is because of Christ. His imputed righteousness and his atoning death alone are the basis, the grounds for our justification. Dear ones, God is a fearful judge if we 
and God himself looks to our work as the reason for our justification. But he is a loving father if he looks to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the reason for our justification. Well then, in what sense is our love for God in this life made perfect? Well, briefly, our love for God in this life is made perfect in that it grows by the grace of God into a mature, full, or complete love in contrast to an immature, childish, or insecure love. Thus, just as in our sanctification, we are by God's grace to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.1, so likewise in our sanctification, we are by God's grace to perfect love, according to John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Dear ones, our love for the Lord must indeed not become stagnant, cold, or indifferent. But rather, it must be always growing ever deeper and ever higher. For the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, dear ones, is so deep and so high that we can never dive to the mysteries of its depths. And so high that we can never ascend to the glories of its heights. Let us therefore be growing in the love of Christ. Perfecting the love that we have for the Lord. Growing in maturity in the Lord. Last Lord's Day we considered what John teaches concerning the joy and delight of communion with Christ. And the last evidence given by John that we are enjoying a blessed communion with Christ is our love for the Lord. Look with me at 1 John 4.16. This was the verse we concluded with last Lord's Day. There John says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. But what does such a love that enjoys Christ look like? How shall this kind of love be described? How shall it be identified in your life and in mine? Those are the questions that link 1 John chapter 4 verse 16 with 1 John chapter 4 verse 17. Those kinds of questions we come from that love of the Lord that we find in verse 16. Now to begin to identify what that love looks like. And so in the text before us, The Apostle John identifies two distinguishing marks of such a mature love in the life of a Christian. First of all, boldness before God. In verses 17 through 19, the first distinguishing mark of a mature love that John identifies 
is boldness before God. The second distinguishing mark is love for the brethren. In verses 20 and 21. Here, dear ones, are two evidences to which you may look if you would know that indeed your love for Christ is made perfect and complete. Let us then consider, first of all, that first mark of a mature love, boldness before God. And again, I read for you verses 17 through 19. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Before we consider specifically our boldness before God as a mark of a mature love for Christ, John takes us back to the cause of such a perfect love for Christ. He begins, if you notice in verse 17, herein, or literally, by this is our love made perfect. By what? When the English words herein or hereby occur in John's epistle, there normally follows a reason whereby we may know that the truth stated in the herein or hereby clause is true. In other words, normally there is a reason stated after this herein clause as to why that herein clause is true. Sometimes we find in 1 John that it does occur before the herein or hereby clause, but normally the reason is stated afterwards. For example, one, just one quick example is in the same chapter, in verse 13. <clears throat> hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us. The reason? Because he hath given us of his spirit. See, that's the reason whereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us. Thus, we ask in this particular verse, what is the reason given that our love is made perfect? Is it due to us? Are we the cause of our love being made perfect or coming to completion or maturity in this life? God forbid. As John explains in chapter 4, verse 17, the reason that our love is made perfect or mature is, quote, because as he is, so are we in this world. You may be saying, what does that mean? How is that a reason? Well, let's look at this phrase. It's full of significance. Because as he is, That is, because as Christ is in heaven, so are we in this world. That's the reason why our love is made perfect in this life. 
<clears throat> well, in what way are we in the world as Christ is in heaven? Just as Jesus Christ is dearly loved as God's only begotten Son by nature, even so are we dearly loved as God's adopted sons by grace here upon the earth. Do you want to know, dear ones, how much God loves you who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith alone? Well, then look to the Son of God in heaven. How much does God love Him? For you're standing before God as His adopted child is as firm, secure, and unchangeable as Christ standing before God as His only begotten Son. Dear ones, your adoption is absolutely dependent upon Christ as the eternal Son of God and as your mediator in the covenant of grace. And since Christ can never cease to be God's only begotten Son, nor cease to be your mediator, since neither of these are dependent upon you at all, but rather they're dependent upon God's covenant of grace with His eternal Son. You are chosen and you are loved in Christ and you can never cease to be God's adopted sons. You know, to utter such words would indeed be blasphemous if it were not revealed in Scripture that we are loved not for who we are, in ourselves, but only for who we are in the beloved Son of God. Listen to the unfathomable words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now notice this phrase, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That is, he favored us with his love in His beloved Son. There's the basis. There's the ground. There's the reason, dear ones, that our love can mature and is made perfect in this life because of the love which God has for us in Christ. In our larger catechism, question 74, we find these words in answer to the question, what is adoption? Listen closely. Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of His children, 
have his name put upon them. The spirit of his son given to them are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. How could such glorious truths and blessings and promises belong to people such as us? This is the grace of our God who loves us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, there was the reason for a perfect and mature love for Christ is God's everlasting love for us, as he says in 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. We love him in this life and our love for him is perfected and matured. Why? Because he first loved us. His antecedent love His love being prior to ours is the reason ours responds to His. Rather than such love being the object of abuse, when such love, dear ones, is truly understood, it drives the child of God to a deep sense of shame and brokenness before the Lord when he realizes how he has not only sinned against a holy God, but has sinned against a loving Father. And the more we grow in that love, the more that brokenness occurs in our life when we realize how much God loves us. Such undeserved and unending love, dear ones, compels from us a perfect or full love for Him. And I simply ask, is not this same divine pattern of love to be in a Christian marriage? Certainly wives as well as husbands are to love in a marriage, but according to Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, Is it not the specific duty enjoined upon the husband to love since he represents Christ? And why is this? Why is he given specifically the duty to love? Because, dear ones, where authority to lead is entrusted to sinful man The tendency is to lead by brute force, harsh commands, intimidation, and tyranny. Thus Christ is given as our example, husbands, that if we would lead so as to have our wives follow, so as to have our wives submit to our lawful authority joyfully and cheerfully, then we must lead in love. Love, dear ones, is not sappy. Love is not wimpy. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rather love rejoices in the truth. And love gives and gives and is always giving of oneself. 
Love sacrifices all for the sake of the one loved. Gentlemen, we must, like God, like Christ, initiate a sacrificial love if we would receive and return to ever-growing and maturing love of our wives. We're now ready, dear ones, to consider briefly the first identifying mark of a perfect or mature love for the Lord, boldness before God. John declares that our love is made perfect in order that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. The word translated boldness literally means freedom of speech. That is a confidence and assurance in the presence of God. This boldness is not the cockiness or brashness of a spoiled child who rudely interrupts his father who is speaking or who disrespectfully addresses his father as if he were the father's superior or equal. That's not what this word means or how it's used in this context of boldness. Nor is this boldness the presumption of a prodigal son who makes unconditional demands of a father who is rich in mercy. Rather, dear ones, this boldness or this confidence in the presence of God is a firm and settled assurance that the eternal, infinite, and holy God is your Father. This boldness, dear ones, is simply a security in knowing that you belong to God as His beloved child and that He belongs to you as your merciful Father. John, in this epistle, almost becomes enraptured about that thought. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now. We're not awaiting that time in which we will become the sons of God. We are now the sons of God. And are entitled to all the privileges of the sons of God. Do you understand? Do you have a glimpse of what that means? God willing, before the sermon's over, you will. You see, this is a familial boldness. It would be completely out of place for my children to express to the men in our congregation the same intimate and familial love that is expressed to me, or to go to them and seek from them the food and clothing and shelter they need 
or the advice, encouragement, instruction, or discipline that a father should give to his beloved children. You see, that's a boldness or a confidence that my children and your children have with you in particular. That they don't share with anybody else. It's a unique relationship, a bond, a security that your children have in your relationship, men, or should have. Perhaps the idea of a loving father seems rather foreign to some of you because your earthly father abandoned you or abused you or was a stranger who instilled a cowering fear in you rather than a loving confidence. Perhaps you grew up rather, or you grew up wanting rather to run from your father than to run to your father. Well, closely listen to what I'm about to say, dear ones. This is why we must look in faith to Christ and understand what God the Father willingly undertook in the covenant of grace to make you his adopted child. What was the cost of your adoption to go out and in these times to adopt a child is a very costly thing to do. It certainly evidences a great deal of love for the one who is adopted. But dear ones, can you imagine the cost of your adoption? Do you understand what the father sacrificed and paid to adopt you? Nothing less than causing his own and his only begotten son to drink all of his infinite and holy wrath. Nothing short of satisfying all of his divine justice which you deserved but which Christ bore for you in order that he might by unbreakable cords of love draw you unto himself and bind you to himself for all eternity. And so I say to you who have not known an earthly father to love or by whom to be loved, listen to the comforting words of your father this day and embrace these words and never let them go again. From Psalm 68.5 A father of the fatherless And a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And dear ones, this is why you can have a familial, childlike confidence in the presence of God. He is your father and Jesus is your elder brother. Now that is a family that instills confidence to even the weak. In faith, when you understand the love that surrounds you. And when the Christian begins to enjoy and delight in that familial security and boldness, it is an evidence that his love for the Lord has reached a place 
of maturity. When he understands that. Not simply can repeat it back or quote a catechism question, but understand it, understands it so that it actually affects his thinking and his actions and his words. And when you have that familial boldness, dear ones, you can look at the day of judgment, even now. Or you can look at the day of judgment on your deathbed with the same confidence. For it is not a fearful judge that you see on that throne, but it is the lover of your soul who has sought you and bought you to make you his very own that sits on that throne. I had the privilege of seeing firsthand in the death of my mother-in-law recently what this confidence before God can do in the life of a Christian who faces death. From early visits with her where there was that worry or at least anxiety about facing death to the last few visits that I had the privilege of spending with her and going through these very truths which we have spoken of today and seeing that from anxiety she passed from that state to an earnest longing to be with the lover of her soul. She was a Christian even at the very beginning of of the time that we spent together. She could certainly state what she believed concerning her, her faith and her trust and the grounds of her faith, but going over those truths with her completely changed death and dying. For she saw who was on that throne. It was not one to fear in a slavish fear, but one who loved her. And this is, dear ones, the same familial confidence that drives us to come before him in prayer. Not only as we look to the day of judgment, but every day when you know that this is who awaits you as you come to prayer, will that not drive you into his presence? to fellowship and commune with such a God? Will you not feel shame that you have neglected and ignored such love? This is the confidence before God, dear ones, that rules and reigns in the heart of a Christian when he or she even suffers the loss of health, the loss of loved ones, the loss of possessions, or the loss of favor with men, this confidence pervades a boldness before God and therefore a boldness in facing whatever comes into one's life. You see, boldness before God issues in a boldness before everyone. 
a confidence, a security knowing that everything else can be taken from us. But the Lord our God will more than make up anything that we have lost. This kind of boldness, dear ones, sends us to Christ and not away from Christ. This confidence before Christ gives us a confidence before the judgment seat, not only of God, but the judgment seat of men when we are falsely accused, when we are slandered, when we are maligned. We have boldness because we know in whom our confidence is. We do not fear what mere man can do to us when we truly know the love of Christ for us. Nor do we doubt that God in His good providence is working all things for His glory and our good, whatever may come into our life. When we know that Christ genuinely, truly loves us. When we know that we have a Father that did not withhold even his own son to adopt us into his family. However, the enemy of this holy confidence is a slavish, demonic, and cowering fear which has the effect of driving us always away from the Lord Jesus Christ as we find in chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Certainly there is a holy fear of God which we must stir up as a gracious affection in our lives. 2 Corinthians 7 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This holy fear is a reverence, is a respect, is a awe and wonder directed toward our glorious God. To fear God in this sense is not at all detrimental to our confidence before God. But actually, this type of fear of God is the foundation for our confidence in God. For if you do not reverence God, if you do not take God seriously, you will have no reason at all to love Him and respect Him. This holy fear of the Lord spoken of many places in the scripture, is nourished even by God's fatherly care and discipline of us. In Hebrews chapter 12, the apostle demonstrates the necessity of discipline from our heavenly Father. When he says, and he's speaking in the context of their sufferings, what they had endured. And he says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. You may be close, but you've not quite yet arrived at that point where you've had to shed blood 
on behalf of the cause of Christ. But he says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, after... Word it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So the Lord chastens us. And that nourishes that grace of fearing Him because He does. We respect Him. We honor Him. We show Him awe and wonder even as he does chasten us, but we know he chastens us because he loves us, because we are his children. I dare say, dear ones, children who do not have, I'm speaking more in a general sense, in families, children who do not have an earnest respect for their parents due to this kind of loving discipline that we've just read concerning that God himself administers to us, Such children are not children who will truly love their parents or who truly have confidence in the presence of their parents. You will not have confidence in the presence of your parents if you do not respect your parents and show them the reverence that is due unto them. Rather, children who do not respect their parents will ignore, rebel against, and continue to disrespect their parents. Well, the fear that is antithetical and spoken of here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it is antithetical to this familial boldness before God that we have been speaking of, that John has been speaking of, And this is a fear, dear ones, that enslaves the child of God. It enslaves the child of God with an image of God who is a severe judge just waiting to punish him on that last day. You know, this is the view of of Christ that the Romish church has. In many of the writings, they have indicated that the reason that Mary, the sympathetic mother has been uh, brought uh, in, up in their theology is because Christ is presented as a harsh, severe judge. And because she being so loving and sympathetic will go to her son and persuade him to have mercy 
upon those who call upon her. See, this is the blasphemy that crops up when we do not understand the love of God, the mercy of our Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such fear does not produce boldness in God's presence, but, but it produces timidity, cowardliness, dread, and estrangement from the Lord. Such fear actually paralyzes and shackles the child of God. Rather than enjoying freedom with the Father, one who lives in this kind of fear lives in bondage, estranged from the Father. Such fear, dear ones, is not limited to death or the last judgment. But as we said earlier, the child of God who does not enjoy, enjoy familial confidence with God may live under the fear of losing everything in his life. And when fear overshadows us, all we can see is what we are losing. And we do not enjoy then a perfect or mature love for Christ to see all that we are gaining. Fear focuses on what we are losing. Love focuses on what we have gained. Dear ones, perfect love casts out such fear. Therefore, grow and live in that love. Second main point that we mentioned, and because I have spent so much time in past sermons on the subject of love for the brethren, this will be a very brief point, but I want to make it nevertheless. The last point is that we consider now the second mark of a perfect or mature love for Christ, and that is love for the brethren. In verses 20 and 21, we find these words. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. You see, it was the view of the Gnostics that mere knowledge made love for God perfect or mature. They were trying to grow in their love by simply putting more knowledge into their minds. That all by itself. Certainly, knowledge of Jesus Christ and His truth is absolutely necessary for love to be made perfect. For without God's law, we cannot know even what love to God or our neighbor is. So we must have, foundationally, a knowledge of Christ and His Word in order to love. But if that's all that we are seeking to acquire is simply facts and knowledge about theology... But it doesn't affect our life. It doesn't affect our home. It doesn't affect the way that we worship God. Then, dear ones, we are simply Gnostics. We are trying to perfect love by mere knowledge. John's emphasis, dear ones, in this passage is not on knowledge. 
It's implied as a foundational part of love, but it is not on knowledge, but rather upon the application of that knowledge toward the brethren. Which really is the only way that we are assured that one truly knows. How do I finally know that my children have actually learned something? when I begin to see it demonstrated in their life, not just when they can repeat it back to me, but when it actually affects and changes their life. How do, how do we know that we have truly learned from God, from Christ, when we begin to apply it in our lives, when it begins to change our heart, our mind, our thinking, our actions? And we have good warrant for believing we have learned that truth. Well, since a mature love for God, dear ones, is not something that I can simply take out of my pocket and show you, this is true love for God. How will a mature love for God be evidenced? John says, the way we know that one truly loves God. That he has a mature love for God is that he loves the brethren. Visible love for the brethren, not simply in words, not simply a mere verbal profession, but especially in deeds. Mere profession of love for the brethren, dear ones, is not enough For John says that such who simply utter a profession are really liars. Love for the brethren is supremely evidenced. I'm just kind of capsulating what I believe the scripture teaches about love for the brethren here. Love for the brethren is supremely evidenced by denying ourselves so as to pursue the welfare physically and spiritually of others. Denying ourselves so as to pursue what is best both physically and spiritually for others. It is making ourselves uncomfortable in order that we might give eternal comfort or physical comfort to others. It is revealed, dear ones, in our words, in our letters and notes of encouragement which we send. It's revealed in our phone calls. It's revealed in our deeds. Love for the brethren is antithetical to a me-first, self-centered attitude. Me-first does not comport with brotherly love. Those are antithetical and contradictory. The only type of me first that qualifies for brotherly love is I will serve first. Not I will be first. Love for the brethren does not so much consider what a brother can do for you, but what you can do for a brother. And without this self-sacrificing love in your own home or in this church, I maintain that it's not 
real in your own life yet. If it's not evident in your home, if you're not expressing that type of love in your home, then it's a mere profession. Love, dear ones, begins in your home. Evidence of love, husbands and wives, parents and children, begins in the home. Dear ones, in conclusion, is your love for Jesus Christ growing and being perfected? Is your obedience, passion, communion, and commitment to Jesus Christ and His cause growing and being perfected? Or are you content with a love that was once fervent but is now grown old? Is passion for Christ simply a faint memory from the past? Like looking at an old photograph? Oh yeah, I remember when I was once passionate for the cause of Jesus Christ, when I loved Him with that kind of zeal, thumbing through the family album. Or is it a daily experience that you enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ? For you see, a mature love for Christ is one that cherishes, embraces, promotes, and defends His least commandment, His smallest truth, His neglected cause, and His forgotten covenant. A complete love for Christ looks not even at our suffering for His cause as an intolerable burden that we have to bear. A perfected love for Christ, a mature love for Christ in the sense in which John speaks makes the yoke of Christ easy and His burden light. Yea, I dare say, even a privilege to carry. Let us then move, dear ones, beyond apathy, beyond complacency, beyond mere routine in our Christian life and press on to a perfect or mature love for the lover of our soul. Please stand with me in prayer. O Lord our God, Thou hast challenged us this day to look at Thee afresh from Thy Word in the glory of our adoption, whereby we have boldness to come into Thy presence, whereby we have boldness to face the day of judgment, to face death, to face the loss of everything in this life. For we know that Jesus Christ loves us. We know that the Father loves us. O oh Lord our God, we pray that these truths would encourage Thy people this day to turn from their fears, to turn from all bondage with regard to worry, and to commit themselves to the love of Christ. Therein will we find security and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
Our Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee for Thy for thy word and the treasures that are in it. We do treasure thy word more than our necessary food. We pray that thou would give to us not only a desire and a willingness to hear it now, but to demonstrate we really know and understand it by applying it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.